welcome to Apocryphal Australia, where we present stories about Australia's past that highlight the obscure, the unsubstantiated and or the fanciful. These are tales of people, places and events that have hitherto been overlooked. So we're going to investigate, research and explore them until the cows come home and then we'll present them to you. It's a job that needs doing and we're the ones to do it. Hello everybody, I'm Michael Pryor. And I am Stephen Higgins. And welcome to another episode of Apocryphal Australia. But before we get started, Stephen, I want to get into some of our correspondence. Yes, it's always good to uh, to read the correspondence. Oh yeah, from our many listeners out there. Well, one of them, uh, Connie Urquhart of Perth, WA, look, she's very gently, very politely chided us for what she sees as a bit of an Eastern States parochialism. And she wonders when we'll get around to exploring the other side of this great continent of ours. I know that I have looked at a couple of Western Australian-based subjects, but they haven't they haven't come up for broadcast yet. Well, but, that, that, uh, that's right, Stephen. I think that's what we can reassure Connie. Look, future episodes, WA will feature with some truly outlandish, truly apocryphal stories. But I thought you were going to say outstanding then. Outlandish, outstanding, bit of both, really. But second of all, we've we got to play guilty in some ways because we use what sources we can get our hands on, obviously. And at the moment, that usually means stuff that's close at hand, so to speak. So we're doing what we can to extend the reach of our research. But here's one I want to do a bit of a shout out to our listeners. It's where they can help. Look, be like Russell Orlop of Victor Harbour, South Australia. He sent us copies of his grandfather's diary and photographs telling us about how ugly his dog Buster was. And apparently he had no nose either. But that's, as we say, apocryphal. Mm. But please don't send us valuable um, uh, photos. That you, you know, that, that's the only copy Oh, yeah, you have. really good point, Stephen. Uh, valuable stuff. You take copies and send the copies to us, but you know, keep your hands on the primary stuff because really uh, that mm. sort of stuff is irreplaceable. Yeah. By all means, send us valuable stuff in the form of jewellery and coins. It's only showing support. So that's the way we take it, and we're, we're honoured when this stuff arrives on our desk. But, Stephen... That aside, let's get into uh, the juicy material we've prepared ready for this episode. So what have you got for us first up? Well, a slightly different one. Um, I was going to have a look at a gentleman known as Warren Mackles, who was born in 1937, leapt into the public arena when he first decided that he couldn't abide the mayor of his local council of Gungabi and decided to secede. So at the time, Mackles owned approximately 200 acres of prime turnip land just south of the township. His dispute with the local mayor, the Right Honourable Huey McStip, began with a proper dispute, but Mackles soon realised the benefits of not paying tax at all, federal or state. And indeed, it's been reported that he began to enjoy the trappings of power that this brought. The Mackles family farm, Macledonia, has come to be quite a tourist destination, but the area's not always been so peaceful. So once he decided to secede, it all started to happen for Warren, Warren Mackles. In February of 1972, King Warren cited the titles to both his land and the land adjoining it, the McSlip Farm. Apparently there was some uncertainty about a strip of land 12 metres long and 4 metres wide. The land in question had been apportioned to the McSlip farm in the belief that no one would notice. 
King Warren noticed and sent his son Trevor to occupy the land, claiming that it was culturally a part of the Mackles farm and that he would go to any length to liberate the freedom-loving cows that presently grazed upon it. McFlip re retaliated by annexing the old shed that abutted his property on the Western Front, and soon the protagonists had settled into what became a long, drawn-out war of attrition. The first casualty of the war was Trevor Mackles, who caught himself a beauty when he banged his head on a post. He returned to the fray, however, and soon the blood of Mackles and McFlip was spilling freely onto the sacred turf. Some semblance of normality was returned to the area when Sergeant Flint locked the warring parties in the cell overnight, thereby providing some chance for meaningful negotiations to take place. Discussions were later described as full and frank, as they generally are, with Trevor barking his shin on a chair and having to be replaced at the negotiating table by his younger brother, Norm. Norm exited the discussions and returned to the farm, declaring peace in our time. But he had not reckoned on the resolve of the wily McSlip, who had fenced the area in question and had occupied the land with a combat-hardened unit of strike goats. Mackles replied to this outrage by breaking off all negotiations and spraying a herbicide near the McSlip boundary on a windy day. This sort of carnage continued until the appearance of Ralph Nodnut, an out-of-towner who purchased land adjoining both the McSlip and the Mackles farms. Nodnut declared his farm to be totally organic and the feuding McSlips and Mackles formed an uneasy alliance to see off this new threat. And at this point in time, negotiations are still continuing. It is an unresolved conflict as we speak. Ongoing, as they say. Absolutely. It's become one of those um, like those, those feuds that you hear about in the deep south in America between two families. Only this, of course, is right here in, in Australia. Mm. Ongoing, but underreported, like many of the things we're bringing to light. It just makes you wonder what the mainstream media are up to. Now, Michael, I, I caught a glimpse of your notes and I, I, I saw that you're going to be talking about the Aquanauts. Now, I'm, I'm assuming this is some sort of deep sea diving club? There's certainly some wet and moist aspect to this particular, uh, this particular vignette I'd like to read to you. It's very religious, though, something that I didn't expect at first. It has a spiritual aspect. And this is the rise of the First Church of the Aquanauts, and this occurred in the period 1951 to 1955. So one of Australia's more outlandish developments in organised religion took place in the early 1950s when Queensland's small goods manufacturer and part-time tarpaulin salesman, Barry Beamish, founded the First Church of the Aquanauts. For most of his working life, Barry Beamish had shown no signs of divine inspiration or special insight into the nature of God, sadly. However, in 1951, just after the failure of his smoked tripe-on-a-stick franchise business, Barry Beamish announced that he'd been visited by the Archangel WD-40 and commanded to begin a new divinely approved church. Barry Beamish immediately turned his Nangalup home into the first church of the Aquanauts and threw it open for business, or for divine service, which was much for muchness. His message to the curious congregation went for three hours, but no one present could afterwards recall any details. The gist, however, seemed to be that water was the source of all life and therefore all salvation. Something like that. The result of such a fundamental tenet was that Beamish insisted that all members of his church should eschew the earth, which he called the source of grubbiness, filth and dirt 
by wearing special water-filled bladders that were strapped to the bottom of their shoes. This meant the faithful walked with a distinctly springy, lurching gait and were protected from contact with the vile earth. While such important elements of worship as the water bladders didn't come cheap, the fervent aquanauts flocked to buy them in the sure knowledge that they were bouncing towards heaven with every step. Barry Beamish's brother Brian, the Enlightened, was hard-pressed to meet the demand. Soon the rollicking strides of the faithful aquanauts were a familiar sight in the town of Nangalup. In short time, the movement spread throughout southeast Queensland. Younger members of the church began strapping multiple bladders to their feet, confident that the higher they went, the closer they were to God. Several nasty accidents, however, brought Beamish to the pulpit denouncing multiple bladders as heresy. But the unorthodox practice thrived in breakaway chapters of the First Church of the Aquanauts, particularly the Marine Brethren. Flushed with success and the steady cash flow, Barry Beamish anointed himself to the position of Bishop of the Bladders. While his brother Brian the Enlightened took care of the day-to-day business of recruiting new parishioners, Barry went about adding a certain gravitas to his person. At first, he started strapping large-scale water bladders to his body. Pleased with the success of this, he constructed a large water-filled hat that looked like nothing as much as a small fluid-engorged pumpkin. In profile, he began to resemble a cross between a force-fed pâté de foie gras goose and the Michelin man. Initially, he tended to fall over if he turned suddenly due to the sloshing effect. He soon mastered the skill of turning with the majesty of an ocean liner. He was extremely careful not to make any sudden movements and affected a stately and somewhat ponderous gait, which he felt befitted his station. He did however, become paranoid about sharp objects and banned them from the many temples that had sprung up in towns and suburbs all over Queensland. People from all walks of life began to be converted to the watery way, and many politicians, sniffing the breeze, began to take notice. A private member's bill was put forward in 1953 by the independent member for Nangalup, Stanley Puck. In essence, it promised to take the First Church of the Aquanauts and make it the official state religion of Queensland. This proposal was enough to raise the interest of veteran newshound Veronica Daly of the now-defunct Brisbane Banner. With five minutes of research, she had uncovered Barry Beamish's shady background of failed business dealings, shonky land purchases, scientific fraud, passing bad checks, forging and uttering, fitting and turning, rocking and rolling, jumping and ajiving. When the story hit the front page for the Brisbane Banner, Barry Beamish attempted to shrug it off. Unfortunately, he did this while hiding in a small closet, and the sudden movement broke all the straps and bladders on his body. The result was that he drowned in the ensuing torrent. Without the guidance and spiritual leadership of Barry Beamish, the members of the First Church of the Aquanauts soon came to their senses and abandoned their lives of moist sanctity. By 1955, the church was no more. The thought occurred to me that it would be difficult for a church like this to exist today. At first I thought it would actually be quite easy with the internet and, and, and being able to spread the message far and wide. 
True, true. But of course, the internet involves computers and computers involve electricity and the two do not make sort of a happy mix. A bad combination entirely. It, thinking about it like that, it is utterly a pre-internet phenomenon, this, uh, the Aquanaut. And you do, I wonder, as we've wondered before about this uh, following up some of these, these stories that we've managed to track down, are there secret chapters of the Aquanauts still out there somewhere getting nearer to God through being bouncy? Stephen, in this chock-a-block episode, you've got a famous person. It's a really difficult one. This is Andrew Clunes, and he's another one of these people that probably should be better known, but we know almost nothing about him. We do not really even know what year he was born, where he was born, where he grew up, nothing. The, the term man or myth comes readily to mind, but with either man or myth, you, you tend to know some details. But anyway, we just don't know enough about this enigmatic, important man. And indeed, some people claim that clunes simply did not exist and that they may be right, given the sketchiness of what we do know. Back in the winter of 1940, obviously, we were at war times were tough. The Australian government received a proposal to aid the beleaguered mother country. The proposal aimed to destabilise the German war effort by bringing the system down from within. The proposal was signed A. Clunes. And let me point out, we don't don't know that if this a name, a group, whatever. It, It was decided that it was probably a person. A contact address was given. The relevant government authorities were alerted and contact was soon made with the secretive Clunes. However, no direct contact was made. Clunes used dead letter boxes, fake addresses, all sorts of things to hide his real identity. Clunes kept his distance in order to protect his loved ones, um, should he ever get captured. Shortly after he made his plans known to the authorities, Clunes embarked on one of the most dangerous missions ever attempted by a non-American during the entire war. Posing as a German tinker, he entered Germany. Little is known of his day-to-day life behind enemy lines, but his plan to attack the German war machine from within soon began to bear fruit, literally. Clunes surreptitiously planted acres and acres of tropical fruit throughout Germany. He had somehow managed to transport tons of seed into the country, and he began sowing pawpaws, guavas, custard apples, pineapples and mangoes. Obviously, most of the plants did not have a chance of surviving but enough lived long enough to attract attention. The German agricultural bureaus were soon alerted to the apparent major crop failures afflicting the land, and they were further baffled by the fact that they did not even recognise the crops being affected. The entire German bureaucracy was dragged into the mystery of the failed crops with the odd fruits, and it was all duly reported back to a small wooden hut in the middle of the St Kilda Road barracks in Melbourne, Australia. Realising the danger that Clunes was in, the Army Intelligence Unit running his activities ordered him to stay low for a while. Then they lost his file when someone spilled tea on it and a cleaning lady said she could fix it, no worries, lovey. Monies were continually sent to Clunes via a Swiss bank accounting system that managed to circle the globe five times before disappearing in a small second-hand clothing shop in suburban Moscow. The same route has been used to send messages to Clunes. His last recorded response to these messages was a cryptic, I know you are German. This code is broke. I will take no notice of it, but keep sending the money if you are for real. Clunes. And Clunes is still thought to be operating a watching brief in Berlin, or he might be dead. 
Wow. Wow. I love a World War II unsung hero story. It's got everything. It's espionage. It's it's war. It's secretive. It's it's fantastic. And it's got no no ending. We don't know what happened to him. That's so look, a mystery inside an echidna. Uh, an enigma. <laughs> well well done, Stephen. You've you've really come up trumps this time. Probably one of the hardest research um, jobs I've had to do, clunes. Uh, they're just it's it's like chasing ghosts. Now, Michael, I remember, I think it was last episode where I was bemoaning the fact that Australia didn't have any superheroes, and I did hear that your latest topic perhaps might have had some super sort of superhero tendencies, but so far back in time that he wasn't just he wasn't recognised as a hero at the time. Hero is certainly right, Stephen, and this is why Gabriel Sinjin Eversley deserves to come to public notice, and this is what I'm trying to do right here after extensive research, of course. So let, let, let me jump straight into it. Gabriel Sinjin Eversley is perhaps the most mysterious member of the First Fleet. There's no official record of his actually being a crew member, part of the military, convict, nor on Captain Phillips' administrative staff. He is, however, mentioned numerous times in letters, journals, diaries and other informal records. Now, this elusive Gabriel St. John Eversley is variously described as a merchant, a fraud, a poet, a sponge diver, an advisor, an apothecary, and, at one stage, a cow. His name occurs in the proceedings of military courts held in the new colony, as well as in business transactions, love letters, and requisitions for supplies. Eversley first comes to light in detail in a description of a wrestling bout in the first weeks of the settlement where his fearsome tactics defeated all comers. Soon after, he's mentioned as a useful helper in decision-making, but his offer to organise the colony along the lines of an ancient Greek city-state was apparently declined. Worse luck. This is the last mention of Eversley in Captain Phillips' papers, apart from a cryptic, undated marginal comment noting that Eversley was known to be in two places at once. Eversley became a low-level preoccupation for the nascent colony, but few actual sightings of the man were established. Marine commanders added his names to roll call, assuming he was part of their squads. Rumours that Eversley had founded a breakaway colony to the south abounded. Convicts assumed he was one of their own and insisted that he knew of a secret cure for scurvy. Sightings of a masked man continued in these early months around the colony. Many sick and infirm told tales of a stranger appearing on a magnificent white stallion, setting wrongs right and challenging injustice wherever he found it. A marine officer and his family, trapped trying to cross the Swollen Creek, were rescued by a man whose face was hidden and who refused to give his name before vanishing into the bush. Once the first fleet relocated to Port Jackson, sightings of the solitary stranger continued saving people from blazing tents, finding lost children and settling disputes with words, not violence. Reports eventually came of his being accompanied by a loyal friend of some sort, and together they did their best to make the colony a safer place for all. A handwritten pamphlet, tentatively dated from late 1798, posits that the mysterious masked man was none other than Gabriel St. Geneviously. Although the author also suggests he could have been a phantom, the Antichrist, or the man in the Iron Mask. 
Sightings of the mysterious stranger declined over the months as the colony concentrated on the business of survival. Even the discovery near what was to become Rose Hill of an object described as a silver bullet didn't excite interest, and Gabriel St. John Eversley gradually faded into myth and folktale, with many wondering just who was that masked man. So, the, the lone stranger, as it were. <laughs> now, that's, that's got a ring to it. I'm sure we could attach that appellation to Gabriel St. John Eversley. Stephen, it's time for a bit of geographic wonder, right? Sometimes places can be as interesting and fascinating as, as the people that live in them or around them. One such place is Lake Triage, cold, forbidding and lopsided. Lake Triage, New South Wales, is a mecca for people who like to fall on their knees and worship things. Only in this case, it's the sport of downhill water skiing that gets these enthusiasts enthused. Due to a quirk in nature, the lake has an unusually high proportion of minerals that, combined with a perverse magnetic field, cause the waters of the lake to lean to one side by a considerable degree. In layman's terms, this means that rather than finding its own level, the water here finds someone else's. This results in a surface that lends itself to the exciting, if little-known sport, of downhill water skiing. Practitioners of the sport flock to Lake Triage every winter for the annual national championships, where local potato farmers vie for the title of best grower, best peeler and best chips. As soon as this event is finished, they relax, unwind and break out the skis as they head for the hills of Lake Triage. The undulating shoreline where small batches of heavily charged water particles gather is smoothed out for the event in order to prevent any injury to skiers as they come off the runs from the other side of the lake. Good skiers can reach speeds approaching really fast, and the ripples at the edge of the lake can prove fatal at these speeds. Ned Spondouli has been world champion of this event for the past year. He maintains that the only skill required to excel at downhill skiing is a will to slide. Each year provides new challenges for Ned and his ilk. Two years ago, for instance, ilks were banned from participating and Ned was left to go it alone. And just as a footnote, the, this controversial rule has since been revoked and Ned and his ilk will be up there competing with the best of them this year. In a recent interview, Ned noted that it was a challenging sport. He also said that the water at Lake Triage was particularly wet this year and this could make conditions even more challenging. And it's thought we'll see a few records broken here this year as well as possibly some bones. I asked Ned if he had any tips for beginners, but he didn't want to help anyone at all. There are no free goes in this sport. The fastest man and or woman wins. The national downhill water skiing titles are held every year, every winter at Lake Triage. Spectators are welcome at all events. Well, Stephen, what can I say? There's nothing so obscure, so far-fetched or, or so niche that we can't uncover it. If it's out there, we'll find it. And if we stick with the geographical theme, Michael, you're looking at another place, but this one this one is very, very mysterious. Tell us about it. I'm examining Mount Hopeless, which is another in the line of inspirational Australian peak names. Mount Hopeless, South Australia, joins such greats as Mount Disappointment, Mount Misery, Mount Disaster, and Mount Complete and Utter Waste of Time. Mount Hopeless is located in the middle west of South Australia. A more accurate location is actually difficult as Mount Hopeless is Australia's only mobile massif. 
Mount Hopeless was well known to the local Indigenous inhabitants who spoke of its quest to find a suitable resting place. Such tales were scoffed at by the numerous European explorers who staggered through the area in search of inland seas and whatnot. But in 1846, Jean-Paul Messier, an expatriate Frenchman who was in a misguided search for the right place to start a cosy little bistro, sighted what became known as Mount Hopeless. As he reported in his diary, I only took my eyes off it for a second and it was gone. A big hunk of basalt vanished. He never saw it again. Sightings began to come in after this. It was reported as being located anywhere in a 500 square kilometre area, often appearing in locations 20 kilometres apart on consecutive days. Despite these sightings, no one actually saw it move until an expedition was sent by the University of Adelaide in 1924. The geologists employed locals as guides, and, sensing a huge joke when they saw one, the locals agreed. Within days of following the torn landscape and ripped-up earth, the scientists blundered on Mount Hopeless, which was skulking around a small sandstone outcrop with nothing to do. Sensing their presence, the mountain fled. It led them a merry chase, ploughing through the outback like an out-of-control ocean liner. Eventually, they cornered it on the shores of Lake Bloody Fiasco, which was full of water for the first time in 50 years. Trapped and with nowhere to go, the mountain at first tried to be inconspicuous. Then it played dead. This gave the geologists a chance for closer inspection, after which it was announced that the mountain was the prime site for an alpine resort if only it were a thousand kilometres further south. Hearing this, the mountain roused itself from its sham inactivity, shook off the geologist and headed for the Australian Alps. The geologist pursued the wily peak but lost track when it doubled back on itself late one night. When the trackers gave up because they were laughing so much, the geologists were on their own. Undeterred, they followed Mount Hopeless with the stubbornness of politicians in sight of a fact-finding tour of the Seychelles. The geologists followed as Mount Hopeless skirted the Stuart Rangers and Cooper Pedy, then crept past Wilpena Pound late one night. Under the cover of a torrential downpour, the mountain crossed the Murray River near Renmark, where the geologists lost it entirely. Months later, reports came of a strange large outcrop sneaking past the Grampians in Victoria, and a suspicious escarpment was seen lingering in the vicinity of the Macedon Ranges some time afterwards, but nothing definitive was ever established. No one has ever seen Mount Hopeless since, although recently skiers have told of new slopes suddenly appearing where none existed before, and after a day's exhilarating skiing, they've gone looking for the same slope, only to find it gone. Wow, that's, that's incredible. Unbelievable. Yeah, I, I agree. It is incredible. Absolutely unbelievable. And to be brutally honest, Michael, some people might question the veracity of some of these reports, but we have some, some reports from reliable witnesses, I understand. Oh, they are 100% reliable. They swear on it. Scoffers might scoff, but we believe eyewitnesses who are prepared to promise that they saw what they saw. Cross their heart. <laughs> and they do. Excellent. Well, you can't can't question that sort of commitment. Can't do any better than that. And that's Apocryphal Australia, another anecdote, another story to add to what is becoming a bulging compendium of wonder. Yes, we need another filing cabinet, Michael. 
<laughs> certainly do. So that's just about it for uh, this episode, Stephen. And we get to plunge back into an our investigations and explorations and prepare another episode very, very soon. Yeah, absolutely. I've got the books all at hand, ready to dive into them. I'm looking forward to it, and I'm sure our listeners will too. So until next time, see you later, everybody. Bye. You've been listening to Apocryphal Australia, a podcast dedicated to giving new life to aspects of history in the same way that Dr Frankenstein gave new life to remains that should have stayed where they were. And that's probably a bad analogy, but we don't resile from it. Resile? Us? That's not what we're on about. Frank and fearless explorers of the back blocks and byways of the past. That's what you can count on every episode. So subscribe, set your reminders, get everyone on side and be ready for your next episode of Apocryphal Australia, coming to a listening device near you. So until then, be kind to yourself and others, okay?